0: Okay, Judges chapter 10, outline on the table in front of you, we're at the 6th verse of the 10th chapter, we're about to begin a study of Jephthah, and so we'll uh, have prayer and then start at verse 6 of chapter 10. Father, thank you for this uh, very beautiful day, thank you for the opportunity to come together in this room and to fellowship with one another to enjoy a delicious meal. And to study your word, it's a sweet time, and we're grateful for it. Bless those unable to join us today because of sickness or perhaps some are traveling. Keep them safe. And we pray, Father, that uh, this afternoon you would speak to us from your word, instruct us, um, guide our hearts. And uh, with this season of the year, we we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our precious Savior. So bless us now in these few moments, in Christ's name, amen. I I don't want to miss the opportunity to remind you that Sunday morning in both services we have the Christmas musical by choir and orchestra, so don't, don't miss that. If you are normally a second service person, you get to hear the great choir and orchestra that you don't normally get to hear, and they are awesome, so we'll have a great time Sunday morning. Sunday night, family night in Bethlehem. The kids are precious. Don't miss it. Then the 22nd, uh, I'll be back in the pulpit. I'll have to reintroduce myself to, to you after missing some. Uh, and then Sunday night, the 22nd, is Carol and Candlelight. And that's always a great night at, at church. So that's kind of what's coming. All right, let's look at verse 6 through 16 of chapter 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you. Forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, are you holding on to your seat? The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites and the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians and the, Amaleks, uh, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to help for me, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer Save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Now that's a pretty significant Verse. We'll get back to it in a minute. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mispa. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. All right, we'll stop there. You go back to verse 6 and you have to think to yourself, here we go again. How can Israel keep doing this? Uh, I think I made a tongue-in-cheek statement last Wednesday. Don't they? Didn't they teach history in in the schools? <laughs> well, realistically, why do they keep doing the same things over and over again? Now, I'm sure that no one in this room ever has a problem with that. By that I mean doing the same thing over and over again and saying to the Lord over and over again, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I know that doesn't apply to any of us. So they serve the gods of their pagan neighbors. And where does it get them? Does it cause them to be in favor with their pagan neighbors? Do their pagan neighbors say, oh, you Israelites, well, wonderful, you're worshiping our gods now. We just love you, and we want to be your brothers and sisters. Is that what it gets them? No, it doesn't. All it gets them is oppression from the very people whose gods they are worshiping. Isn't that amazing? The chief oppressors in this list are the Ammonites and the Philistines. In chapter 12 verse 7, when we get there, you will find that they are going to, Israel is going to get a brief respite as Jephthah defeats the Ammonites. But the Philistines, that's another matter. The Philistines will oppress Israel for generations. We've not heard the last of that term, the Philistines. There's always a price to be paid for sinning against the Lord. And here the price is going to be steep for Israel. God is angry with them. And he sells them into the pagan hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Isn't that shocking? Does that that shock you to read that? He sells them into the hands of the Ammonites and the Philistines. Ammonites oppressed Gilead then for 18 years. It's a long time. 18 years. Where were you 18 years ago? And then emboldened, they crossed the Jordan River to attack Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. And the scripture tells us Israel is devastated. And then we read that Israel repents. She repents. But the Lord's response is not what they expected or hoped for. How many times have I delivered you, and yet you turn your back on me again? So in a manner of speaking, God said, I'm done. Go to your new gods and see if they'll help you out. Then they demonstrated their repentance the people did, by continuing to cry out and began to get rid of their gods, their their false gods. And God responds, but not from their repentance. This is interesting. He responds, but not from their repentance. I can't think like God thinks, but as God was looking at their repentance, did He say, I've seen this before. I mean, He would have had a right to say that. I've seen this before, many times. But he responds not from their repentance, but he responds because he cannot bear their misery any longer. Isn't that amazing? The grace and the love of God. It's not that he's necessarily buying into the sincerity or insincerity of their repentance. He just can't stand to see his people suffer like that. And so he begins to act shows astonishing grace, which, by the way, is the sinner's only hope. Now, let's continue on with a search for a Savior who is going to be the leader, the judge, so to speak, who's going to save Israel this time. So look at verse 17. When the Ammonites were called to arms... And camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mispah. And the leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever takes the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. All right, then chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown, when those sons were grown, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So, uh, for whatever you want to say about Jephthah, apparently he was a leader of men because he gathered a pack of scoundrel men around him quickly. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? I see... Anybody see a parallel there other than me? Anybody see that? With what God... How God responded to Israel? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. So I want you to notice they didn't deny that they had had a part in driving Jephthah away, they said, well, okay, in spite of that, nevertheless, we're coming to you now on bended knee. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Now, that's where the brothers, his brothers, have come to. From driving him out because he's the son of a prostitute to now going to him and say, if you you save us, we'll make you king. We'll make you leader. We'll make you whatever title you want to give it. So Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? I I don't blame him for asking the question. Do you? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. All right, we'll stop there for a minute. So if you look back at chapter 10 verses 17 and 18, we see that war is imminent. So who's going to lead Gilead against the Ammonites? Jephthah, whose name is Mighty Warrior, and and I think as we will see, an apt description of of the man. His father was Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute, and therefore Gilead's other sons threw him out. He settled in Tob, which uh, geographically, if you can in your mind locate, uh, north Israel, north and east along the current israeli syrian border you're probably on top of Tob. so he's he's a gang leader jephthah's a gang leader that carries a meaning today doesn't it he's a gang leader Um, they hired themselves out from time to time it's a tough world and jephthah learned to fight and he learned to lead So the elders of Gilead go to ask him to come back home and save them from the Ammonites. Jephthah blames the elders for inciting his brothers. He's not letting the elders off the hook. Or if they didn't incite his brothers, they at least supported his brothers in driving him out. And so he somewhat sarcastically, I suppose, said, Now you come to me, why should I help you? The elders plead, and they promise to make him their leader, their head, their king, if only he will lead them to victory over the Ammonites. So Jephthah pushes, he pushes them to swear to God that they'll do that, which they do, and he believes they'll honor their commitment. Obviously, he believes they're sincere about what they're saying, so he agrees to come. Now, a lot hangs in the balance for both Gilead and Jephthah himself. But the bigger question, not asked in words by the Gileadites or by Jephthah, is this. What is God going to do? If anything, what is God going to do? So let's go to verse, 11, uh, verse 12 of chapter 11 and begin to get our answer. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, man, he's going back in history, isn't he? When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, "'Let us pass through your country to our own place.' Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory." He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over the land of the Amorites, who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the dead desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, had driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your god Shem- Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we'll possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years Israel occupied Heshmon, Aror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you. But you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent to him. So let's stop there. Uh, here, here we have um, a classic case of negotiation. Uh, Jephthah is negotiating. Now, in his mind, I think Jephthah knows that the negotiations are not going to be successful. But he uses the time of the negotiation, the back and forth, the back and forth of messages, and will, will you do this, we'll do this, because he knows war is inevitable, and he wants to do two things. He wants to morally seize the high ground. We see that here, Jephthah, in spite of his complexity and his, what will become readily apparent, his lack of um, of concern about God, he is seizing the high ground in saying, "You you have no claim to this land. God gave it to us. It's ours. So you have no right to it." And while he's doing all this negotiating. He's buying some time in order to recruit his army so that he'll be stronger when the inevitable conflict comes. Now, his tone is firm, not conciliatory. He is saying to the Ammonites, justify your invasion. You're here facing us. You want to whip us. Justify that. Who who gave you claim to this land? God gave it to us. Who gave it to you? What What makes you think it's yours? And whose God is strongest, yours or ours? And if this land is yours, how come you're just now speaking up and saying, this is our land? What What were you doing all these years before now? Why are you just now saying, this land is our land? I mean, You know, okay. Why now? If it's always been yours... Why the silence for all these years? Well, here is why Jephthah, and this is perplexing to my pea brain. Um, some of you who are a whole lot smarter than me may be able to figure this out. But here is why Jephthah is in Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame. Verse 27. Look at verse 27. I have not wronged you, but you're doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. That single verse is why Jephthah is in the Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, there, There is no other verse that can explain why he would be in the Faith Hall of Fame with some of the folks we know very well in the Faith Hall of Fame. He is trusting Yahweh to give him the victory. He has faith that God is going to give us the victory, even though as we shall move forward, he apparently doesn't have much of a relationship with God personally. The potential for him is great. Unfortunately, as we continue to read forward, he's going to blow it spiritually. He's going to blow it but militarily he will prevail. He will win. God will give them the victory. So, you see Jephthah as a negotiator. He says, when we fight this battle, and the New York Times writes about it, they're going to say, Jephthah has the high moral ground. People around us are going to say, We are the offended party here. We we are innocent. We are right. And it's the Ammonites who are the Johnny-come-latelys who are saying, Oh, no, 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 this is our country. And you need to get out or we're going to run you out. And Jephthah says, No, 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 this is our country because God has given it to us. And if this is your country, how come you're just now saying something about it? So... All the media of the day, which I mean, that doesn't even exist, but all the media of the day would have said, Oh, Jephthah's right. He's, he's got the high moral ground. He is, he is a good negotiator. A- and we see it. He's good with words. Now, what's going to happen next? Well, God moves. We've got just enough time to begin to get into it. Chapter 11. Verse 29, now this follows verse 28, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Now that doesn't mean he didn't hear it, doesn't even mean he didn't ponder it, but what it means is he wasn't about to do what Jephthah wanted him to do, which was bow gracefully out of the scene while there is still time and all your soldiers are still alive. That, that, that's your choice. If you don't do that, it's not going to go well. Okay, verse twenty-nine. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mispa of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Now, I know most of you have read Judges, so you know what's going to come. But this is a shocking. This is a shocking event. Here, here's the vow that he made to God. And, and I assure you, God was not pleased with this vow. And we're going to see that in a few moments or next week. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, now there's his first issue. He's saying to God, if you do this, I'll do This, I beg your pardon, who do you think you are and who do you think God is? If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Is he out of his mind? Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth, as far as Abel, Keran, Mim, thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels. She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried. Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down. No, she didn't. You brought yourself down. But that's my editorial comment. You have brought me down. I'm devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, this is unbelief. She, she's an, ex, an exceedingly amazing lady. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. I can hardly read that passage of Scripture. The Spirit of God comes on Jephthah. Did he know it? There is no evidence at all that he was aware that the Spirit of God was on him, at least verbally. There's nothing to indicate it. And it reminds us that God uses people who don't know him. God uses people who don't know him. And Jephthah prepares for war, and he made this absolutely unneeded vow, because God had already promised the victory, and he made this foolish vow, totally unneeded. What was he thinking? So from a favorable view of Jephthah, perhaps we now in our thinking have an exceedingly unfavorable view of Jephthah. And it's going to get worse. The Lord gives Jephthah a resounding, resounding victory. He returns home and his daughter comes out of the home first. I have a daughter. And of our multiplicity of, of grandchildren, we have one who is a girl, granddaughter. I cannot even imagine. I mean, this is horrifying to think about. She is, is amazing in her response. She says, don't break your vow. Just give me a couple of months to visit my friends and mourn with them. Uh, that's remarkable. If I had asked for a couple of months, I would have hot it to the hills, and he would have never found me. But she returns home. His vow, back to the vow, his vow begins with if. And he shows there his angst, his doubt about what God had promised to do. We're going to stop. And so we'll pick up there... Um, Next Wednesday, and we'll try to get to a happier passage to go into Christmas with. But um, I mean, this this is this is horrifying to me, and I, I know it is to you also. So, what is he thinking? And there are some who have tried to explain away the words here, but you can't do it. We'll we'll explain that next time. You, you just you can't do it. It is what it is. It is exactly what you think it is, and it, it's horrible. So we will deal with Jephthah uh, next time, and I think we'll finish uh, Jephthah. And then we've got some other, again, some minor judges, and then we get to the big boy, Samson. Okay? Now, you remember my opinion of Samson. Have I already, didn't I already tell you this? Um We picture Samson as this big muscular bodybuilder type. I don't think that's true. Why would I think that? Because the scripture says his enemy says, where's he getting his strength? You don't look at a bodybuilder and say, where's your strength come from? It's obvious. But they're asking, where'd your strength come from? How do you do what you do? I think he just looks like an ordinary guy. But the power of God was on him, and so I'm excited about studying about Samson. So we'll we'll get there maybe maybe next time. If not, then the first Wednesday uh, that we come back together in January. Father, thank you. Uh, Father, if there's anything I can think about at the moment with Jephthah, it is a, his his life is a reminder for us to be really careful about what we say i, I think about what he said to you is wanting to bargain with god and and making an, a foolish foolish promise I, I pray father there'll be a guard on our lips that we would never say anything so foolish in, in our hearts and in our lives and in our relationship with you and with others. So, Father, um, I pray that this has been a good time for us today. And it's a sobering passage. But I pray that we'll let the truth of the word swirl around in our hearts and in our minds. And we'll be back next week and, and continue in the life of Jephthah. And then move on from there to more judges and to Samson. Keep safe, each person here. Keep us healthy. Bring us back together again next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.